A Few of the Girls. Written by Maeve Binchy and read by Kate Binchy. About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by a short story title at the first navigation level. This digital talking book was produced by Visibility Limited, formerly the Association for the Blind of Western Australia, in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact Visibility on country code plus 61, area code 08-9311-8202, or by email library at visibility.com.au. Before we hear Kate Binchy, who was Maeve's cousin, reading these stories, this is Gordon Snell. Maeve and I were married for a very happy 35 years, and we used to write together in the same room, because I write children's stories, and she writes, as you know, novels and stories like the ones you're going to hear. Maeve's mind was always full of stories. In all the years we sat writing at each end of the long desk in front of our study window, I never saw her gazing at a blank page, wondering how to start. She used to plunge at the keyboard like a swimmer into the sea, typing at breakneck speed and without pausing to correct any errors in punctuation or spelling. If the devilish machine suddenly made a page or two of text disappear, she didn't spend any time on technical fiddling. She said it was quicker to write the whole section again, there and then. And the stories and characters emerged, shaped and described with her smooth, straightforward and sensitive style. It seemed almost effortless, as if she had sat down to tell you eagerly about something that had just happened. Maeve always said that she didn't write any better if she wrote more slowly, and she talked in the same way, the words almost tumbling out in their haste to be said. Storytelling was her natural and magical talent, and as well as her novels and books of short stories, she wrote many other stories for newspapers and magazines. I knew that her many devoted readers would be delighted to see, in book form, so many stories they hadn't come across before. So here they are, in this new collection, A Few of the Girls, selected and gathered together by her agent Christine Green, editor Juliet Ewers, and Pauline Proctor. The stories are just part of the truly extraordinary output of Maeve's powerful and compassionate imagination and the great storytelling legacy she has left to us all. Georgia Hall Georgia had always been a leader. Way back at school, she was the one with style. When Georgia decided to carry her school books wrapped up in a red ribbon, Everyone else abandoned their school bags and satchels and got ribbons also. It was the same when we arrived at university. She didn't appear to try too hard, but everyone wanted to do things her way. She read art history, always saying it was an undemanding thing to do, yet she was at the very top of her group. She had a little bedsitter which she said was so terrible she couldn't imagine anyone wanting to visit it. Yet every Friday there was a small drinks party there which people fought to be part of. 
George's hair always looked perfect. Compared to all the other girls, who had bad hair days every day, Georgia looked as if she'd just left an expensive coiffeur. Which she had, actually. She worked in a posh salon on Fridays, their busy day, and in return got a few tips, a good cut every month, and a shampoo and blow-dry every week. She must have worked hard at her studies because she was never seen out on weeknights, but on Friday she played hostess to the college's finest. Saturday lunchtimes she was often seen in a pub on the river, surrounded by college heroes, and she'd have a date at the best restaurants on Saturday nights. It was hard to know whether people liked her or not. There was something calculated about her even then. Georgia never giggled or confided. She looked at you in a measured way with her big grey eyes, as if she was taking you in somehow, as though she was evaluating you, wondering was there something she could absorb from you for herself. Well, that's what I thought anyway. But then, obviously, I wouldn't warm to Miss Georgia Hall. Well, I mean, she took James, my boyfriend. Of course, there are those who could, and I'm sure did say, that he wasn't forced to leave me for her, that nobody put a noose around his neck or a gun to his head. James walked very willingly to George's side that autumn. One week, he and I were running around, catching falling leaves for good luck, and the next, he was all dressed to kill in a new jacket, taking her to this expensive grill place that he and I had never been to, and that he had often said was rather pretentious, because we couldn't afford it. He handled it all very badly. I suppose you've heard, he said awkwardly to me. Well, of course I'd heard. College was like a steamy goldfish bowl. Everyone heard everything. But I wouldn't let him have the satisfaction of knowing I'd already been told. Heard what? I asked. I was never Oscar material. I shouldn't even try to act. I know, someone must have told you, he said. I'm seeing Georgia. Well, of course you see Georgia. I pretended to be dumb, forcing him to admit what I already knew. No, I mean seeing in the sense of going out with, he said. Oh, I said. It wasn't much of a response after all that manipulation. I'm sorry, James said foolishly. Well, if you're sorry you're going out with her, uh, seeing her, why do you do it? I asked. No, I I'm not sorry I'm going out with her, he snapped. So what are you sorry about? I asked. It was childish, but then I was very hurt. I was entitled to some bit of revenge. I'm sorry for upsetting you, Moggy, he said. I have this stupid name, Moggy. It's meant to be a pet name for Margaret. I only realized later that I needn't stay stuck with it for life. I could have called myself something like Georgia. But by the time I realized that, it was too late. Me? Oh, I'm not upset. You're not. He looked very relieved. Men are so simple at times. No, not at all. He looked at me as if he'd never seen me before. I wondered what he actually did see. I'm not tall and graceful like Georgia Hall. I'm more dumpy, in fact, small and square and solid. My eyes looked to me to be too close together, and I always imagined it made me appear sinister, 
bit like a criminal even, though James had always said I was silly to run myself down. My hair never looked as if it had seen a posh hairdresser, even if I did actually take it to one. It looked as if it had a life all of its own and grew in different directions. And unlike Georgia, I had no elegant clothes, no wispy scarves, no floaty skirts, just the same jacket forever and a small variety of skirts and trousers. I was studying boring old economics, not lovely ethereal art history. No one in their right minds would blame James for his decision. You're amazing, Moggy, quite amazing, he said admiringly. And I suppose I was amazingly mad. Georgia was practically purring when I met her next. It was outside the dairy where she was buying cheese for her Friday evening soiree. James tells me you've been really super about everything, she said, and she rolled the words around before letting them out. I wanted to lift up a big wooden crate that was near us and break it over her head. I mean, it was a real urge, not just a passing fancy, but I beat it back. It won't last, this romance, I told myself, and then he'll come back on his knees to his moggy, and I'll make him sweat a bit before I take him back. I smiled at the thought. You look quite nice when you smile, Moggy, the patronising Queen Georgia said. There was an unspoken second half of the sentence, something like, if only you got your teeth fixed, or if only you weren't so unacceptably tubby. She just left it hanging in the air, allowing me to fill in the blanks. She can't win forever, I told myself, and smiled again. But she did seem to be winning for a long, long time. Well, naturally, she finished with James, who, of course, came bleating back, wondering if his moggy could have it in her heart to forgive him. But actually, I didn't have it in my heart. I didn't want him any more. He was no longer the great James who was going to change the world with me. He was a silly, vain man who liked the way the prom princess had smiled at him and brought him temporarily to a position of power in her court. And we all got on with our lives. I got my degree in economics and joined a research foundation where we did a lot of good work. And whether we changed the world or not, I don't know, but we certainly dug around and found the facts and the statistics to help others change it. And James joined a rather right-wing firm of lawyers whose chambers handled a lot of corporate clients, the kind of people we once thought were the bad guys. And Georgia Hall, oh... Georgia became famous. She looked so good. She was a natural for television. So they always had her on to talk about this art acquisition or that discovery or, or to sum up what somebody had done for art. And she spoke in a clear, unaffected voice, prefacing everything by saying, it's only my opinion now, which covered her if she was wrong about something and heaped great praise on her if she was right. She helped to compile art books. It was suggested once that somebody she was collaborating was going to sue her for taking the credit and doing none of the work. But that was all hushed up. Or possibly it was just gossip. I wasn't the only flying bird whose wings had been singed by Georgia Hall. Sometimes I used to tell people I'd known her both at school and university. But then I stopped. They always wanted details about her and I realised how very little any of us had known her at all.
Did she have brothers and sisters? I didn't know. Who were her real friends? It was hard to say. People who mattered, possibly. Well, that had always been a theme. Instead of the leading lights of the debating society and the dramatic society or the rugby or the rowing club, George's friends were now people in the arts or politicians, captains of industry, and even minor royals. She had long left the little bedsitter behind, and I heard or read somewhere that she had a really elegant London home. It figured she was really elegant everywhere, at the races, the opera, the Venice Biennale, some fundraising dinner to keep a work of art in Britain. Oh, I sound as if I was obsessing about her over the years, as if I watched her skyrocketing with some bitterness and a beady eye. But that's not true as it happens. I was very busy and had little time to spend thinking about and envying the girl most likely, as she had always been known. I had a life of my own. The foundation where I worked got a lot of attention in the circles where I appreciated and cared about such attention, and I was headhunted by a small go-ahead agency where we did, though I said myself, magnificent work on exposing inequalities of opportunity. We dealt with issues of class, education, race, religion, prejudice and ignorance. Soon our work and findings were greatly in demand from universities, investigative journalists and local councillors and campaigners and churchmen and politicians. And in the agency I met Bob. Everything changed after that. He had exactly the same dreams as I did, the same belief that life was short and that whatever good had to be done must be done now. Bob was an eager, enthusiastic person who believed that people were basically good and all you had to do was encourage them. He seemed to like me a lot. Oh no, stop putting yourself down. He loved me. Bob loved me. I used to ask him, was there something wrong with his eyesight when he told me I was beautiful? I didn't expect to be considered beautiful. I expected people to think I was basically all right, and I worked hard, and I cared a lot, and my heart was in the right place. But beautiful? No. That'd be pushing things. Bob would get quite annoyed. Margaret, one more word, and I swear I'm going to insist you wear a bucket over your head. You have beautiful, velvety, brown, loving eyes, so can you shut up about them? And I did, because, in the great scheme of things, the closeness of my eyes was quite a small factor. And life went on well. My picture was often in the newspaper of various projects, and my parents were proud of me. They liked Bob, and, after I had glared at them a lot, they stopped asking when were they going to see an engagement ring. Bob and I lived in a small basement flat very near work. We often had work meetings in our sitting room, and that was where we thought up a great scheme for the agency, which really worked well. It involved architects, planners and builders giving instruction to volunteers about building houses in Africa. We got sponsorship from all kinds of people and huge cooperation from schools. It really caught people's imagination. Even the arts world had become interested. They were going to encourage ethnic design and murals for the projects to make them look less functional. Now, what we needed was someone who could be the public face of an appeal for sponsorship. We really need someone like 
Georgia Hall, Bob said. If only we knew someone who could put us in contact with her. I paused for a moment before wondering aloud, would she even consider doing it? She would, Bob was definite. I bet you anything she would. All right. So I paused, longer than I should have, but then my conscience took over. I must not deprive this campaign of Georgia Hall, just because I feared her and resented her and had definite history with her. No, I must tell Bob that I knew her from way back. You never said. He was astounded. You never asked, I replied dully. My life is an open book to you, and now it appears you have all these secrets, he complained. Is there anything else you never said? Are you married, maybe? Are you a millionaire? Do you deal drugs? Okay, Bob, I'll write the letter, I said. She replied promptly. Very sorry, but too many commitments already. Desolate to have to refuse. Very worthy cause. Wish it well. And a small handwritten P.S. Imagine that being you, Moggy. I didn't recognize the name Margaret, thought it was a different person. But on looking at the pictures, I should, of course, have known it was you. She didn't write that she would have known me anywhere, but she meant it. A part of me was relieved. Oh, all right, to be honest, I was entirely relieved that she wasn't going to do it. But Bob was undeterred. No worries, I'll persuade her, he said confidently. My stomach felt as if there was a lump of lead wedged in it as he set about getting in touch with Georgia Hall. All his skills and determination I had so much admired seemed hateful now, as he forced his way into a fifteen-minute meeting with her at a television studio. That was all she could give him, he was told. That's all he would need, Bob said. And he came back triumphant. She had agreed. She's very bright, he said admiringly. Sharp as a tack is Georgia. I looked at him wordlessly. The lead in my stomach had gone upwards towards my voice box. I couldn't speak. I wondered what Georgia saw when she looked at my bob. He was big and sandy-haired with freckles on his nose. He had an eager, shambling way of expressing himself. He wore a corduroy jacket and a yellow open-necked shirt. He was so much not the kind of person she was always seen with, not suave or smooth or dissembling at all. But perhaps Bob's transparent goodness was fashionable these days. Maybe Georgia, who'd always been one to spot a trend, had seen the future. A familiar sense of dread came over me, paralyzing rational thought. Was I going to do the same this time, pretend that it didn't matter, that I didn't care? Had it worked the last time? Well, in a way it had. James had come back, but by then I didn't want him back. That wouldn't happen with Bob. James was a student flirtation. Bob was my mature and permanent choice. I didn't need the engagement ring or the semi-detached house that my mother thought were the indications of security. I just wanted his love and shared vision. And now... It was all happening again. He'd come back saying that Georgia was intelligent, sharp as a tack, whatever that meant. It proved conclusively that looks were the only thing that mattered in the end. Why had I been so blind for years? I went to a hairdresser that day, an expensive place. 
He was a very pleasant man, the stylist. He told me that he and a few friends were going out as volunteers to build houses in Africa. He'd recognize me from an interview in the papers. I felt better after the cut. I told him that I thought I looked less of a fright than I'd done before, and he laughed uncertainly, as if I had been trying to make a joke. I asked him what he'd do if he had my small eyes, and he said that he thought my eyes and my heart were huge and had done a great deal for the world already, and I was so touched that my small eyes actually filled with big tears and he had to give me a tissue. Bob was meeting Georgia at her house to discuss details of the campaign. I tried to concentrate on work all day, but it was hard. And it was hard even to continue breathing when he called later to say that Georgia was fixing something for them to eat in her house. When he came home, the first thing he did was to admire my hair. It's lovely, he said simply. Pure guilt, I assumed, but... I smiled, feeble smile, and listened while he told me how quick she was and how streetwise and a dozen other good things he seemed to have noticed about her. She was coming to the office next day. She wanted to meet the team, and she'd go to Africa next week. That'll cost a bit, knowing the style she'll be used to, I said sourly. No, she's making a point of paying her own way, he said. He was under her spell, just like all the others. And suddenly I knew why witch doctors existed and still exist in different forms, agony aunts, counsellors, lifestyle gurus, people who will help us to find a stronger spell, better magic to vanquish the rival. Bob was still talking about her. He seemed to have noticed nothing of her house, only Georgia and every word she said. She spoke very well of you, he said. How dare she talk about me before she replaced me? I found myself contemplating killing her when she came into the office the next day. I might ask her to look out of the window and then elbow her through, or maybe just push her downstairs. It didn't make me feel any better, but it did tire me out, and I was asleep in no time. I dressed in my best outfit next day and put on a serious layer of makeup. But, of course, you could never second-guess Georgia Hall. She was in blue jeans and a floppy sweater, and she had her shiny blonde hair tied back with a rubber band. Her grey eyes were enormous as she listened to everyone on the team describing the work that was being done in an African township. She appraised me as I came in. I felt like a shabby piece of artwork that she was about to expose as a fake. Well, Margie, what a wonderful place for you to work, she said. The others looked at me enviously. They thought she was magical. They hadn't noticed that she left hanging the rest of the sentence, which went something like, considering you're so hopeless and dumpy and stupid. And, as I knew she would, she found Bob the most wonderful part of this wonderful place she'd come to. What a performer, she said, when he'd finished speaking about the work that was being done with African communities. He should have his own television show, she purred. He's so very powerful. I felt very dizzy. It would happen in front of my eyes, and I was powerless to prevent it. Bob was not a performer. He believed everything he said, but under her corrupting gaze, he would become a performer. Everything he'd worked for would be thrown away.
I didn't kill her. I was just too tired and sad. I suppose I worked on autopilot for the day, which seemed to last for about eighteen months. I thought it would never end. And, as I had predicted, Bob took her home to go over all that she'd learned so that she'd be ready for the interview at the airport as she left the following morning for Africa. I waited for him to telephone me to say that he'd be going with her, to organise things, to oversee it all. I waited patiently. He wouldn't actually say that he had to go in order to hold her hand, but that's exactly what it would be. When the phone rang, I was almost ready for it. But it was Georgia. He'd actually asked Georgia Hall to ring me. He couldn't even face telling me himself. He knew how upset I would be. He'd asked her to do it. Oh, Moggy, she said, her voice silky. You're so lucky, Moggy. But then I always envied you, always, from the very start. Yeah, I suppose you did. She clearly expected me to bluster and say, Nonsense, Georgia, you're the one we all envied and still do. So, of course, I decided to go along with the mad premise that I was the object of admiration. You always had everything. Parents who cared about you and came to school plays and knew how you were getting on. Little brothers who thought you were great. And at university you had marvellous friends, real people, not just poseurs. And now you real work with real values, not just posturing like I have to do. So that was the route she was going to take. I'd always had a charmed life, so I should be prepared to give up Bob without a squeak, because poor Georgia had nothing. So, my voice was glacial. So, uh, Bob asked me to call you to say he's on his way home, but he'll stop to get a takeaway. Now, that's what I call real devotion. She was such an actress. If I hadn't known better, I'd have believed her and thought she truly did envy me. But I knew he'd be back shortly with the food and that when we'd opened the bottle of wine, he'd tell me that he needed to go with her. When he came back, he was full of plans for the press conference tomorrow at the airport and how he hoped Georgia wouldn't make it into a three-ring circus. Maybe it's just me, maybe I bring out the worst in her, but honestly, she's such hard going, isn't she? He said. I haven't an idea what he meant. I know, we should be sorry for her, really, he argued with himself. But it's such a fragile existence, thinking entirely of herself. She has to be center stage every step of the way. What people will think of her, what she should wear, how she should sound knowledgeable about tribal art that she doesn't really know much about. Whether it might mean she'll get an honor, and if so, would it be an MBE or an OBE? She'd drive anyone insane. No wonder you never mentioned her to me. He'd opened the wine. He'd said nothing yet about leaving with her tomorrow. But surely he would. He was only softening me up by telling me how feeble she was. Too feeble to go on her own. But still, he didn't say it, and we finished our food, talking on about the media attention she would draw to it all, and how tragic it was that we needed gimmicks like this to get good people to do good things. And then he said... In an entire evening of self-absorption and self-pity, she said only one thing of any interest. She said she'd always envied you, that you were very sure about everything, what you wanted to do, that your family and friends would always be there, in your belief that the world could be a better place. She said she'd lived by image alone 
and it wasn't necessarily the right star to follow. She revealed all that about herself. She must really think highly of you. I was astounded. Well, I had her number from the start, of course. I could see it was the most important thing to her. That's how I got her to agree in the first place. I told her that her image was slipping, that it was too brittle, too uncaring, always being seen at the races, the first nights, the parties. It was time for something more substantial, time she got involved in something. And she bought it. He smiled gleefully. We'll get more support for the project, more houses built and a higher profile, but goodness, at what a cost. Come here, give me a hug to cheer me up. I hugged him, and over his shoulder, I caught my reflection in the mirror. Maybe it was the light, but perhaps I did, after all, have beautiful, velvety brown, loving eyes.